Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. You got to know when to hold when to hold. Tonight on The Big Interview. Define Kenny Rogers' music for me. I'm a country singer with a lot of other musical influences. And she believes in me. Kenny Rogers has led a life of letting the chips fall where they may. Make it 5,000. More often than not, hitting the jackpot. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucy. With four hungry children and a crop in his songs are classic. His duets are magic. But tonight, you'll meet the man behind the famous voice and discover there's a lot more to Kenny Rogers than meets the eye. How'd you get into photography? I have a new category for any psychiatrist out there. I'm an impulsive obsessive. Promise me, son, not to do the things I an artist with many muses, Kenny Rogers, tonight on The Big Interview. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring. For more than 50 years, Kenny Rogers has been preaching the power of music from his one-of-a-kind pope. You got to know when to hold Know when to fall Who can forget hits like The Gambler? Know when to run Not to mention that sizzling duet with Dolly Parton. Rogers has sold more than 165 million records worldwide. This genre-busting star straddled the worlds of country and pop long before it was fashionable. Question is, which of the two of you are willing to take the bullets? And it's not just music. He's an actor. I've seen those same men blow their brains out. And more recently, an accomplished photographer. But Kenny Rogers will tell you, he's just a storyteller. Born into poverty, he got his first break in jazz with the Bobby Doyle Trio. He followed that up with a stint in the folk group, the new Christy Menstruals. And then he planted a rock and roll group called The First Edition, where he sang hits like Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. Don't take your love to town. 
But it was country music crossover hits like Lucille that catapulted Rogers to a whole new level of fame and fortune. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. In Nashville, he is the very definition of living legend and in 2013 was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. That's where I met him recently, to hear the tale of a man who gambled on the music business and won. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing good. I really appreciate you. Oh, I'm happy to do it. My body's falling apart. I don't have any original working body parts. Other than that, Tell I'm good. <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, man. How about you? Mine went a long time ago. <laughs> mine's, mine's falling apart little by little, you know? As we settled into talk, I knew we had something special in common. We are both proud sons of Houston, Texas. Oh, so many years ago. But let's get started, Kenny. I mean, first of all, tell me who you are. I mean, everybody knows Kenny Rogers, right. a singer, the legend, Hall of Fame performer, but who are you? I think I'm a, I'm a product of my mother. And, uh, you know, I was born in the projects in Houston. Uh, and my mom gave, she had a third grade education, but she had some of the most incredible wisdom and you live and die by what you learn as a child, you know. Because I remember she told me, we used to go to church three times a week, down at the First Baptist Church downtown. And I say, do we have to go three times a week? And she said, son, you can never be anything more as an adult than what's put into you as a child. So we're going to church. So we did. But I mean, she thinks like that. Not only did she say them, but she said them with such succinctness, you know, that you really understood and my dad was an alcoholic, but uh, now that I'm older, I think I see why. You know, he came through the World War and he just didn't have a job. There was nothing he could do. I think she, he got just depressed that he had to deal with everyday life and he wasn't dealing very well with it. He was a good man. I always say I got my sense of humor from my father and my sense of values from my mother. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times your mother had a third grade education, but that, that was not that It uncommon. wasn't uncommon. I mean, she had a bunch of brothers and sisters too, and I think they all got about the same amount of education. It didn't seem to hold her back any, nor, nor any of the rest of us all. I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school, and I went to college. I thought I went two semesters. My mom said two weeks. So somewhere between two weeks and two semesters. I mean, I can't overemphasize how lucky I was to have had the childhood I've had. And even as a young adult, I played guitar and I learned to play guitar in downtown Houston at H&H &H Music. I'd go in and they'd let me take a guitar off the rack and guys would come in and say, let me show you this chord. And that's how I learned to play. And I met this young kid named Bobby Doyle, who was a great musician, a great singer. He was about a year younger than me and he was blind. And he said, I'm gonna start a jazz group and I want you to play bass. I said, Bobby, I don't know how to play bass. He said, I'll teach you how to play bass and I'll tell you a secret. There's more demand for bad bass players than bad guitar players. <laughs> he was absolutely right too. You mentioned that your mother's counsel to you when you reached the lowest point of your career, your music career, that hearing the echoes of her advice helped you. What was the lowest moment of your career? 
I think indecision creates low moments. You have to be at point A to get to point B. And when the jazz group broke up, Kirby Stone, who was the Kirby Stone Four at the time, he, he was a big fan of mine. I mean, he just really believed in my talent. And he sent me to L.A. to join the new Christie Minstrels. So I went from jazz to folk music. But, you know, it was an interesting thing because I learned a lot in the Christies. I learned the value of a story song with social significance. And I think that was one of the things with Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town was about a Vietnam War vet who comes home. Ruby James was about a black man that raised a white child. Coward of the County was about a rape. All those things were story songs instead of just music. But that's what I learned from the Christies. But when the Christies broke up, the first edition started and it was, it was great. We had a great time. But when the first edition broke up, I didn't know where to go because I'd been jazz, I'd been folk, and we were kind of country rock, but I didn't know anyone. So I ended up going to Nashville where Larry Butler, he really believed in me and he stood up for me. But that period there, there was about a, doesn't sound long now, but it was about three months where I didn't really have the money to get to Nashville even. And someone stole all my wardrobe out of my car and the insurance company gave me $3,500, which was like a million dollars to me. So I took off for Nashville then. But it was just, I think, when you get to a point to where you know you want to go on, but you don't know which road to take, and you're afraid you'll take the wrong road, those are the scariest moments. You got to know You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Kenny Rogers. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Kenny Rogers. I want to go back, you said your mother had you in church at the First Baptist Church in Houston three times a week. Right. Is that what your first memory of hearing music of any kind, was it in church? Absolutely. And my sister Geraldine, who was five years older than me, I'm sitting listening to the singing and singing with the choir and singing with the, out in the audience and I listened to her, she's singing harmony. I'd never heard harmony before. And I said, what are you singing? She said, well, that's called harmony, where you don't sing the melody, but you sing something that sounds good with the melody. And I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. That sounds really good. So that's where I learned to do that, too. First hymn you can remember singing? Old Rugged Cross. Right out of the Southern Baptist hymnal. Oh, yeah. They were all out of the Southern Baptist hymnal, I think. <laughs> Mine was just as I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. So when you first came to Nashville, what happened? I remember I walked into some, I don't know what it would have been, but it was a big performance center there and didn't know anybody, just walked in. And it was full of people. And I remember hearing somebody on the stage say, how about a nice round of applause for Billy Edwards? He had a hit in 1945 and the place went crazy. And I thought, boy, 
if they remember that, this is where I want to be. You might have a shot. I, and I wanted to be there because I had a longer life there than anywhere else. You picked a fine time to, to leave me, Lucy, with four hungry children, crops in the field. Well, the stuff that's in there will go in here. When I met Kenny Rogers in Nashville, the Country Music Hall of Fame was in the middle of assembling a special exhibit documenting a long and storied career. This is, a, this is the jazz era. A life bigger than any one musical genre. And so now we're getting into Lionel Richie and uh, the things I did with him. It's got to be a thrill for you, no matter how many times you walk oh, in here. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, you, you, you know, this is what most people aim for all their life. And coming from where I came from, I would have never aimed for this. But I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it happened, you know, for my kids' sakes. You know, I think it, I, you know, the great thing is songs come and go, but the Hall of Fame is forever. And that's an interesting place, you know. Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor, and I love you. You have made me what I am, and I am yours. In so far as you can define it, define Kenny Rogers' music for me. I'm a country singer with a lot of other musical influences. I started out I went, when I was 12 years old with my, my sister. My mother made her take me on her date because she didn't like the guy she was going with. And she made her take me and we went to see Ray Charles. And I remember sitting there and listening to him and saying, wow, people laughed at everything he said. They clapped for everything he sang. And I thought, I want to do that. And at 12, I didn't even know I could sing. I read an article that said, a tremendous amount of men decide what they want to do with their life between the ages of 12 and 15. I guess you're coming into puberty. It's like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be this. Well, I wanted to be a musician at that point. And it was, uh, I think, a key turning point in my life. What makes a Kenny Rogers song? I've always looked for two types of songs. I look for, as I said, a story song that has social significance to it. Country music is the white man's rhythm and blues. It's where all the pain is. And a country song would tell you where you were on a warm summer's evening on a train bound for nowhere or in a bar in Toledo. It would take you through an experience and drop you off with a feeling. That's what they did. And I looked for those story songs that had social significance. And I also, because of my jazz training, looked for love songs that said what every man would like to say and every woman would like to hear. And if you look at through the years, she believes in me, you decorated my life, buy me a rose, all those things, lady, I think they all do that. I'd agree. And I think anyone who hears the music would agree. We get back to the you're a storyteller, and you particularly like to tell stories with your music, stories of social significance, yeah. many of which were very controversial, particularly in the context of that time. I'm thinking about Reuben James. Right. Ruby, don't take your love to town. My question is, at the time, did you think these songs were as controversial as a lot of other people? I, I wasn't trying to make a social statement. I, I was, wasn't as concerned about a statement as awareness. And the delicacy of some of these issues 
uh, Reuben James about a black man who raised a white child and how much the white child loved this black man. And I just thought it was a wonderful thing to acknowledge. And although your skin was black, you were the one that didn't turn your back on the hungry white child with no name, Reuben James. Reuben James. With your mind on my soul and a Bible in your right hand. But you saw yourself as a storyteller, not as a social justice activist. Yeah, I, I've never seen myself as a singer to start with. So you have to have something to sell. Wait a minute, Kenny Rogers, you've never seen yourself as a singer? Never. One of the most successful never. singers of this or any other generation? And I, I think it's because of the songs I've chosen. I believe that a lot of people could have done those same songs and been successful with them. I guess it comes back from the insecurity of of my youth to not understanding what it is that made me successful other than my choice of music. Well, by the way, you were talking about opportunities missed, opportunities seized. I want to check a story. I think you've written about this, and that is uh, The Gambler, which turned out to be a reasonably successful concert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that Johnny Cash recorded the song at, at or about the same time, maybe the same, same day. You're kidding me. Yeah. And the New York Times reviewed his version of it favorably, but yours became the mega hit, maybe one of the all-time great hits. Yeah, and I don't think it has anything to do with talent. I think at that point it's the record company. I think I may have had a stronger record company or they needed to get a hit with me to pay for my sessions. But I, I think it was timely and I think I believed in the song. I try to take people on this journey with me and I think it's, that, first of all, the gambler, Don Schlitz, who wrote that, doesn't gamble at all. He just heard those expressions, and he wrote the song, and, and it's a philosophy of life to him, of knowing when to get into something, when to get out of it, and when to stay completely away from it. Do you sing Gambler every concert? Oh, yes, that's dangerous not to do that. I think there's a group of seven or eight that I have to do. That Let's I, go down that list, the seven or eight that you feel you have to do. Yeah, I think I have to do Through the Years, She Believes in Me, You Decorated My Life. I have to do The Gambler, Lucille, Lady, Islands in the Stream, and there's a couple more in there somewhere. I've run across artists, for example, Willie Nelson. It's not a Willie Nelson concert if he doesn't sing Blue Eyes Crying. In but it's true. You know, I went to see Ray Charles and he didn't do Georgia on my mind. And I was mad. You know, that's what I paid for. People don't want to hear new music. And I'll tell you why. An audience has to work very hard when you do a new song. They have to say, do I like the song? Do I agree with what he says? Do I like the way he does it? You know, and by that time, the song's over and they haven't had a chance to enjoy it. When you do a hit, they become a part of the show. I never saw the sun shining so bright, never saw things going so right, noticing the days hurrying by. When you're Kenny Rogers may have an iconic voice, but throughout his career, he has enjoyed weaving it with others, such as here with Willie Nelson. But the list of duets in Rogers' repertoire is long and illustrious. There was the hit, Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer, sung with Kim Carnes. 
Rogers topped the country charts with Sheena Easton for We've Got Tonight. We got tonight, baby. He and Dottie West teamed up for Every Time Two Fools Collide. And it wasn't just female partners. Rogers won a Grammy for Make No Mistake, She's Mine with Ronnie Millsap. Pilots in the street, that is what we are. No one in between, how can we be wrong? And then, of course, there's Dolly Parton. Their worldwide number one hit, Islands in the Stream, has become one of Rogers' signature songs. Islands in the Stream, you recorded that as a duet with Dolly Parton. I did. Tell me about that, because there's obviously been something special going on between you and Dolly Parton. Well, something special, but not what it sounds like. Islands in the Stream was written by Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees, and he brought me this song. He didn't write it for me. He wrote it for an R&B singer that didn't do it. And he, and he brought it to me, and he said, I really want to do this. So I had a recording studio in L.A. at the time, and we... I sang that song for four days, and I finally just said, Barry, I don't even like this song anymore. And he said, I swear it's like an epiphany. We need Dolly Parton. And I thought, well, I'd met Dolly, but I didn't really know her. And Ken Cragen, who was my manager, said, I just saw her downstairs. I said, well, go get her and let's see if she likes it. Well, as only Dolly can do, she marched in the room. And once she came in, the song was never the same. I mean, it was really that different when she sang with me than when I sang it by myself. It had a different meaning, a different set of values to it. And musically, it was so much better. Now, you, you raised this subject by saying, listen, we have a special relationship, Dolly Parton and I, but it's not what you think. Right. You and I have been around a long time, Penny. Neither one of us just tumbled off the turnip truck. I did. I just... <laughs> Are you telling me nothing romantic with Dolly Parton? I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart. I met her husband, first of all, and I was married to Mary Ann through that whole time. What we did is we flirted with each other for 30 years, and it was much more electric. I think once you consummate a relationship like that, it loses something. And she and I both believed that theory. So we did some massive flirting in front of the nation, but there was never anything more than that. Well, I can say by firsthand experience, I mean this in no self-serving way, when Dolly Parton decides to flirt, she knows flirting as well as music. You know, I, I love her. You have, no, you know, because the thing with Dolly, and I don't know whether she likes this expression or not, but we just did a new song called You Can't Make Old Friends that was written for us by Don Schlitz, who wrote The Gambler. 
and it was written for us about our relationship and our career. And it's wonderful and it's very touching. It's like, what will I do when you're gone? And it goes into all this stuff, you know, when St. Peter opens the gate and it's very touching. And in the middle of the song, Dolly comes over and puts her, uh, my theory is that Dolly has no filter. If it goes in her mind, it comes out her mouth. You know, she doesn't stop to think, maybe I shouldn't say that. But she came over, put her arms around me, and she said, Kenny, I just want you to know something. I could never sing at your funeral. And I was like, so we're assuming I'm going first. Is that what you're saying? But she just, that's what's so wonderful about her. If she thinks it, she says it. You know what's on her mind. But she's she's a wonderful girl. And we'll go three or four years without seeing each other. I mean, every night. Someone asked me, where's Dolly? You know, like we talk every day. And I'm just going to start giving them her home phone number and say, call her and ask her where she is. You know, <laughs> She's a sweetheart. Well, speaking of the duet, duets, plural, with Dolly Parton, you've said you think you sing better when, it's, when you sing with other people. Tell me about that. I think everybody does. You know, it's kind of like running the 100-yard dash. You get out and you run it as fast as you think you can but they put someone alongside you who runs it faster than you do, and you'll inevitably run faster. It's like I'll go in and I'll sing my part, and then Dolly or someone will come in and sing, and they'll do a better job than that. I said, wait a minute, I want to redo my part. And then you inevitably, I get better, she gets better, I get better, she gets better. But I think that's the beauty of duets. You see sides of people you don't see in their normal songs. We all know the show must go on, but you, you can't, can't make old friends. No, no. You can't make old friends. Can't make old friends. And you and me will be younger. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Kenny Rogers. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Kenny Rogers. You're a hell of a singer and a powerful man, but you surround yourself with people who demand so little of you. Touched my soul with your beautiful song You even had me singing along right with you Kenny Rogers may have first earned fame as a singer, but his career has had many other highlights. On a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere His hit song, The Gambler, spawned a series of five TV movies. How much money you got? About $300. This won't take long. And his comedic talents were recently showcased in a Geico commercial. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. 
know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. What? You get it. I get the gist, yeah. yeah. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. I took this out on the road with me, and I shot some of my first landscapes with this. That's what Ansel Adams shot with. And I realized that's not for me. That's more like work. He's also an acclaimed photographer, a hobby that became a passion later in life. He's photographed everything from landscapes to celebrity portraits. He was easy to photograph, for lack of a better term. And uh, I took the first picture. How'd you get into photography? I have a new category for any psychiatrist out there. I'm an impulsive obsessive. You know, uh, I'd never played tennis till I was 35 years old. Once I started playing, I hired a tennis pro, took him to every city with me. We played eight hours a day, and I've played with 45 Wimbledon champions, you know, just socially, but held my own. And I developed a national ranking in doubles. And uh, then I got to where I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, it was more uh, demanding than I was capable or willing to put out. So I stumbled into photography. And when I, once I did that, I met a guy named uh, John Sexton, who was Ansel Adams' assistant for four years. So I hired him to come out and go with me, and he taught me Ansel Adams' whole concept of the zone system. And it's like once I decide I want to do something, I then want to see how good I can be at it. And once I feel like I can do it, I mean, I was given this last year by the Professional Photographers Association, I was given a, an honorary master's degree of photography. The greatest gift of all. We could go on pretending day by day that someone somewhere will soon make a change. Tell me about the We Are the World project. How you got into it, what it was? Well, Ken Cragen, I think, was one, he was my manager. I think he was one of the producers of it. And Lionel Richie and I were good friends, and Michael Jackson and I were good friends. So when they started putting it together, they were, and I was at the peak of my career. But boy, when I walked in that room and saw all those people, that was very humbling, very quickly. But it was a, a wonderful piece of music. And if you listen to it, it was for a world that was so downtrodden it was really very uplifting, you know, and it, and it was saying in so many words, we can do this, but we have to do it together. But I, I, that was one of the great experiences of my life. And I have, I think it's gonna be on display here. I have one of the few sheets of music that I got everybody to sign. I started off doing that and Diana Ross came right behind me and we got, we got everybody to sign it. I think they must have raised over a hundred million dollars oh, for, for that project. By the way, you mentioned Michael Jackson. What are your best memories of Michael Jackson? Well, he and I, you know, I did a photography book called Your Friends and Mine. And uh, I had a building in LA and a studio in it. Once I got Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Jackson, people were calling me 
to be in it. And the reason I think I got so many people like George Burns and Lucille Ball and Gregory Peck and all of these guys is that I promised everybody they'd be in and out in 15 minutes because I was shooting an 8 by 10 format. So you have to have a separate piece of film for every shot. I said, I'll shoot two colors and two black and whites. And if we don't like what I get, we just won't put it in the book. Well, Michael, I said, you know, you'll be in and out in 15 minutes. He stayed eight hours. He came over and he brought Bubbles, this chimpanzee, with him. And we sat and talked. And I think when you get, it's like Elvis, when you get to that status, you don't have a lot of people you can just talk to. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't be a person. And 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 we talked about, I shot the first pictures of him with a hat because I think he was gonna have some surgery done and he wanted to see if the shadows would cover it. And they're beautiful pictures, some no one's ever seen before. What's the most interesting photograph you've ever taken? I took one in Joplin, Missouri. And it was a house that was mostly torn down. And there was a sign on the wall that said, I lost my mom at this address. She's in heaven with Jesus and Johnny Cash. And I just thought that was such a wonderful thing. And it's just a little house. But, you know, different pictures take on different meanings to you. I've taken pictures of Stonehenge. I've, you know, so it, it's hard. To, I took a picture of a guy. I actually ended up writing a song about it. He lived in a box in New York City. And he, he's called himself Mike in the Box. And Richard Marks and I wrote a song, When All You've Got Is Love. And we started looking at him retrospectively, saying, you know, he must have been happy at one time. He must have had people who loved him. And now he's here living in this box. And it said, but really, you've got a lot when you all you've got is love. And it's a pretty cool song. I was just listening to it this morning, as a matter of fact. Some man out on the street today, his whole life in a box. Someone must have loved him once. Right now, he just feels lost. I don't know where he's headed. I can't tell where he's been. God, I wish that I could say to him, you can start your life again. I've, I've spoken recently to Loretta Lynn, Merrill Haggard, both of whom have written a lot of songs, They're great songwriters in addition to being great song singers, if you will. Where do you fit as a songwriter in, by your own estimation? I think I'm a specific songwriter, and I'll explain that in a minute. I, most great songwriters need to write. I don't need to write. You put me in a room with songwriters, I can hold my own. I'll offer something, I'll contribute, and it'll be worthwhile. I believe that. Uh, I've written, along with a couple of friends of mine, some wonderful stuff. But I'm more emotional. I'm more even seasonal. I'm very Christmas-oriented. You know, I wrote a one-act play with a friend of mine, Kelly Yunkerman, and we did about 14 songs for it. It's called The Toy Shop, and it's based on a true story. And we did it on Broadway for three months, and then we did it on, on our Christmas tour for three years. It's a one-act play, 
but we wrote some really wonderful, touching songs in that, and, and I'm very proud of that. So I know I can write, but like I said, I don't really have a, a need to write. When people see the exhibit at the Hall of Fame, what do you want them to come away thinking about you after they've seen the exhibit? You think perhaps they didn't know before they came into it. Damn, he must have been busy. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there. I kind of walked through it yesterday, and I, there's some clothes in there I can't believe I wore, but they're on my clothes rack, so I must have bought them whether I wore them or not. But, I mean, I think that I go back to my statement before. I have had a great life, and I don't feel like I really did it at anyone's expense other than, and I, I will qualify this, I think I was selfish in some of my marriages, that I was gone so much that no marriage, no matter how good or bad, could survive. And I think to that extent, that was selfish. But I don't consider myself a selfish person. I think there have been selfish periods in my life, but I'm, 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 I'm getting better. Getting better. Tell me one thing that you think is important to know about you that you suspect most people don't know. Gosh, I don't know. I'm such an open book because my theory is if, if you hide it, everybody's going to dig it up. And if you tell them, nobody cares. So I just tell them everything, you know. It's like, uh, I, I don't know what there is that people don't know, truly. Well, what makes you laugh? Warm humor, as opposed to blatant, over-the-top stuff, unique things. Like, I, I got a thing in the mail the other day that said, seven jokes you can tell in church. And I thought they were really funny. One of them was, you know, my dad writes some words on a piece of paper, and they give him $50. They call him a poet. And the other guy said, well, my dad writes words on a paper and they give him a hundred. They call him a songwriter. The other kid said, well, my dad writes some words on a piece of paper and they call him, a, they call it a sermon. And it takes eight people to collect all the money from it. Well, I just think that's funny, you know, because it, it's, it's true. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I like things that make me stop and think. And then I go, oh, that's pretty funny. I like it's that. It's pretty funny. It is. I you like know, the idea, but what was it? Eight jokes you could tell in church. Yeah, pretty hard to think. And of they were they were really cute. There's one in there about this policeman stops this lady for going over. She's doing 25 miles an hour, and he says, "Sweetheart, you can't drive that slow on the street." And she said, "Well, there's a speed limit right there." He said, "That's the highway number. That's not the speed limit." And he says, "Is all the girls okay in here?" He said, "Well, they will be. We just came off of 135, so you know it's you know, those kind of things. I think are really funny." And what makes you cry? My age. In that my boys are 10 years old. I want to be around long enough to impart some of my mom's wisdom. You know, like I let them watch cops with me on television. And Wanda says, I can't believe you let them. I said, let me show you something. Because I showed them, watch every one of those episodes. Why do those people get in trouble? It's either alcohol or drugs. 
if you don't learn anything else from me, don't do drugs, don't drink alcohol. So three days later, I'm talking to him and I said, watch. So guys, what do we learn from cops? Don't drink drugs. I said, okay, <laughs> we're off to a good start. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's sad because I'd like to see what they become, you know? And, and I, I have, they're 10 years old now and they're like little football players. But when they walk into a place they've never been before, they hold hands at 10 years old. They're still their support system. And I think there's something so sweet about that. My wife's an identical twin. And these kids are identical. I mean, unless you know, know them, you can't tell them apart. You've been so generous with your time and giving of yourself. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? You know, I, I love my wife. I love my family. I love my life. And I love my music. Kenny, thank you. Good to Thank see you. you. Good to see you. My That's friend. a Houston handshake. Very That's clean. a Houston handshake. <laughs> and that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. When the dealing's done, you got no when to hold. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.